Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. Happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers out there. I, um, I, I have a teaching for today, but I feel inspired to talk about something different. So hopefully we'll, we'll have time to get to this. I guess I'll get my clock out so I can keep track of that. Um, there's a couple of things that are, are really significant in the creation story that has to do with women and their, uh, their place in the story of what God is doing in humanity. And uh, those of you who are familiar with the story uh, might know uh, or be, uh, be aware of the details, but in Genesis chapter 1, you have God creating everything, the heavens and the earth and the waters and the land and the, the lights in the sky and the, you know, the sun and the moon and the stars and, and then all the creatures. He fills his world with uh, living beings. And, and every time God creates something and, and, and sees what he has done, he proclaims, it is good, it is good, it is good, and then we move on to the next day. And, um, and then there's this moment after God has created humanity and we've kind of run through the whole picture in Genesis 1 and the beginning of Genesis 2, we, we have God looking, he, he's created Adam from the dust of the earth, and then he says for the first time ever that something in creation is not good. He says it's not good that man is alone. Then he says, I'm going to make a helper who is suitable for him or a good fit for this man. Now, when we think of the word helper, uh, most of us tend to think of that word in terms of our position. And so we are members of uh, one of the most affluent and privileged cultures that has ever lived in the history of the world. Uh, most of us here in the room right now are adults. And so when you think of a helper, you think of someone who is lower than you coming alongside and uh, holding the light while you work on the car or sweeping up after your mess. You think of a helper as someone who's below you coming to assist you in a task under your supervision and, and, uh, and all of that. And, and so it's really quite unfortunate that we hear the word helper like that because that's not at all how the ancient Hebrews looked at the word. In fact, when that word pops up in other places to describe the role of a being in another being's life, there is one being who is most consistently described with that word. Does anyone want to guess who it is? It starts with a G and it rhymes with odd. It's God. The psalmist says, I look to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Our God is our ever-present help in time of need. So if you can distance yourself from to understand the woman's role in God's story of humanity, if you can distance yourself a little bit from your present position and think about what it was like to be a, a helpless child who needed some help. I remember when my kids were potty training and, um, and you know, children can struggle with this idea of using paper to wipe your bottom when you're done. 
And so they would, they would finish their business on the toilet and then they would start crying for help, right? Because they've got a mess on their hands, maybe at times quite literally, and they cannot get out of this mess on their own. They need an adult. They need someone above them. They need someone over them to come and rescue them. (laughs) Sorry, kids. Oh, man, I try not to do that stuff, but every now and then. Uh, That was a Mother's Day present, actually. Laura requested that I embarrass you at church today. Um, So the idea of help coming from someone who's able, and that person who is able has to be someone who's higher than you, more equipped than you, better than you, above you. And that's the idea that the ancient Hebrew had in mind for help. The Hebrew word for woman is is actually related closely to the Hebrew word for redeemer. And so we think about a, a woman's role in the story of God, and they are the one who's able to do the thing that we couldn't do for ourselves. Now, God had given humanity a, a, uh, a blessing and a command when he created them. He said, I want you to, to be fruitful and multiply and then rule over all of creation. And you think about just on a biological level that it is a woman who can carry the hopes of fulfillment of that command. It's the woman who carries the hope for the future of humanity in in her own body. And it's it's the woman who typically is really, really good at nurturing that hope and helping them to survive. I, I have no doubts that if I had not had my wife's help Uh, raising our kids from a very young age, you know, they might be here today, but they probably would have a very limited vocabulary and they would be malnourished, definitely. And so there's this incredible, incredibly important role that God has given to women in his story of humanity, an incredibly important and prominent role. And and it's not one that is in any way below or, or subservient to the male side of that story, but it's one that is incredibly vital and, and could be in, in some ways and, and arguably a, a uh, well, without them, none of us would be here. This thing wouldn't happen. And so, um, so I just, I, I really hope and I really pray that you mothers feel uh, appreciated today, treasured today, and also that you feel um, inspired and elevated to fulfill the role that God has given you. He has a plan for redeeming humanity. He has a plan for taking the things that are not good and making them good. And, and the, the feminine side of humanity is uh, the ace that God had up his sleeve to make that happen. And so, um, so we're just really grateful that you're here because uh, anything other than the men's retreat that's just left to the men would go terribly and utterly wrong. So... Um, Yeah, so we love you moms and we're grateful uh, for you and we are hoping that this next year of your lives is uh, is just incredibly blessed and that you're able to be uh, going about the work of God. Speaking of the work of God, we'll turn our Bibles to John chapter 9 now. Uh, We find the people in John chapter 9 divided once again over who Jesus is. I was thinking about this idea that's kind of been running for a few chapters in the book of John now where the people are divided, the people are divided, the people are divided. And this thought occurred to me that, you know, the people of God are really divided on who Jesus is. 
but when, if you have any familiarity with the modern day church and the people of God and their place in the world today, you probably have noticed the people of God tend to still be pretty divided in, in many, many ways. Uh, it's a rarity. In fact, uh, we have a, a fairly healthy group of, of pastors and church leaders who work together, pray together, uh, have a, uh, share a common vision for our city and God's kingdom in our city. And, and of course, just because of the realities of turnover that happens in church leadership and, and career pastors, new people come to the community all the time. And without exception, when I meet someone, a pastor who's new to our community, they say, man, there is something unique about this community and the willingness of the church to walk together, which I see just as evidence of how divided we can often be because we just tend to be divided over things. I think one of the things that divides us the most is we can agree in a large picture of what is important in the gospel or what is essential to the kingdom of God, but we start to disagree very, very quickly when we want to talk about what is most important or what aspect is more important than another aspect. And so we can oftentimes find ourselves with uh, just really, really divided because we, we cannot agree on, you know, the rankings of importance and different things. Uh, you'll have, uh, for example, you'll have large movements within the church uh, that I, I pastored at a free Methodist church for a period of time. And that particular church would self-identify as a part of the holiness movement of churches, a band of churches that, that became unique to the rest of the body of Christ really in the 19th century um, and, and into the 20th century, the Nazarenes, the Free Methodists, the Wesleyan denomination, and a few others. They're, they're known as holiness churches. And what is super important to them is, is personal moral behavior. And so they feel a conviction that this is something that is of high importance to them in their faith. They probably wouldn't say it's the most important thing, but it's something that they hold very, very important. And then you have other movements in the kingdom of God where, um, where it's less about personal moral behavior and it's more about belonging to the group and observing the right group activities at the right time. And, and so in other words, if you're... If you're in the right place at the right time of week with the right people and you've maybe done a few of the right things to mark that you belong in the community, then personal moral behavior is sort of a second tier thing. As long as you've checked those boxes, you, you belong really, really well. And, and you'll see these things come up. People who, are, who tend to be more focused on personal moral behavior you'll see cultural aspects of a community like that. They tend to be also churches where people dress up nice on Sunday because nothing says I'm behaving like wearing nice clothes to church. Um, churches that tend to have more of an emphasis on belonging rather than the personal moral behavior, they tend to be movements that, that maybe hold to things like infant baptism where they say this baptism is much more about the church stating to an individual you belong regardless of what you've done. You belong because of what God has done. And we're sort of going to just do this thing for you. Say you're a part of the family and, and then we believe it's going to stick forever. As opposed to movements that emphasize personal moral behavior tend to do adult baptism. They say we, only, we don't baptize people until they have made a choice, an informed choice to get baptized. 
All this to say, there's disagreement about what is most important all across the board, and we see different uh, ways of practicing our faith because of that. But it's all very interesting that there would be so much division because we believe in a God who is unified within himself. This idea of a triune creator, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is one, he's not in disagreement with himself, and we believe that we're made in his image and commanded by him or, or uh, commissioned by him to be his image bearers here on earth. How can it be that those who are bearing the image of God, who is unified within himself, would find themselves in such great disunity? Remember last week, we had this healing of the blind man. And the thing that stood out to me in that healing was Jesus used a phrase saying, we must do the work of God. I thought, man, what a, what a thing that Jesus would turn to his disciples and say, this is a we thing. We're doing this together. And so you can see evidence of that whole idea that what God is looking for, a unified God is looking for a unified people to bear his image in the world and to be in partnership with him doing the work of the kingdom. And there's this really famous verse from the prophet Amos, one of the Old Testament prophets. As part of what he's speaking, the word of the Lord to the people, he says, if two people aren't in agreement, then how can they ever walk together? So today my hope is that we would find some agreement with God's values, those things that he thinks are most important as it's revealed here in John chapter 9. Um, there's all kinds of good things. But which ones does our Savior mean for us to seek first? Especially when it seems that something has to be sought at the expense of something else. Sometimes you have to make a decision. Which, which thing are we going to say is most important? Anyhow, uh, we're going to pick things up in John chapter 9, verse 8. And I'll pray before we do that. Father, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation that they give us of your character and who you are. And we thank you for the invitation you have given us to be like you. So as we read your word together today, we just ask that it would speak to our hearts and it would change us and form us that we would be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, in John chapter 9, we read it last week, Jesus healed a blind man, right? He's born blind. He says, this is the work of God. He makes some mud. And he puts it in the man's eyes and he says, go and wash in this certain pool and then you'll be healed. The man goes and does it and he's healed. And as we pick the story up in verse 8, it says the man's neighbors and those who'd formerly seen him begging are asking, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? So he was blind, not a lot of employment options back then for people who were blind. All he did was beg. There's man's walking around town seeing and the neighbors are noticing and saying, isn't this the same guy that used to beg? Verse 9, some claim that he was, but others said, no, he just looks like him. But then the man himself insisted, yes, I am. I'm the blind man that used to beg. And so they said, how then were your eyes opened? Verse 10, he replies, the man they called Jesus made some mud. He put it in my eyes and he told me to go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and I washed and then I could see. Can you imagine talking with someone and having this conversation with them that you knew they were blind? I mean, this, was, this is an eye-opening experience, pun intended. Where is this man? They asked him. That would probably be my first question as well. <laughs> I've got some sore feet maybe he could take care of. 
Where is this man? He says, I don't know. In verse 13, they bring to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. And the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. And therefore, the Pharisees asked how he'd received his sight. And the man says, he put mud in my eyes. And then I washed and now I can see. And because of this, some of the Pharisees said, well, this man is not from God. For he does not keep the Sabbath. But then other people said, well, how can a sinner perform such signs? And so the people were divided. We've got people hung up on a couple of different things, right? What are the Pharisees hung up on? Somebody just say it. The law, right? Yes, it seems strange. This man who couldn't see can see now. But this man cannot be from God because he's not following the Sabbath. They're hung up on that. But then you have other people who are hung up on the fact that, look, I know the Sabbath is important, but I can't get over the fact that someone who was blind can now see. And they're both divided. They can't meet on common ground because they're both hung up on what they think is most important. For some people, what's most important is staying in bounds of the the boundary line set by the law regarding the Sabbath. And for other people, well, I don't know about all of that, but this guy's blind and now he sees. It's the experience they see right in front of them. Why is the Sabbath such a big deal to first century Jews? Any of you read uh, like the Little House on the Prairie books back in the day? And in one of the books, I forget which it was, but my, when I was young, my grandparents would have all the grandkids up for a week, and we would stay with them and kind of have our own cousin camp. And then one of the moms who drew the short straw for the year of all the aunts had to come and hang out with us because we were too much for my grandmother to handle. And, uh, and usually that mom, I remember, would bring a book, and they would read us a novel throughout the course of the week. And, and we were reading one of the Little House on the Prairie books. My Aunt Anita was reading it. And there's this scene where it's the Lord's Day, it's Sunday, but they're observing it like it's the Sabbath because that's what you did in Minnesota in the 1800s. And, um, and the kids are playing outside and they get in big trouble because they're playing on the Sabbath. And so you can see that it's not just first century Jews who took this day very, very seriously, but this whole idea that we are not going to do any work on the Sabbath was, is taken seriously by people. Of course, the origination of this whole idea of one out of seven days that you rest is from the creation story. So we find ourselves in Genesis yet again. Uh, At the end of God's work, six days creating the world, he blesses the seventh day and he rests on the seventh day and then he sets it apart as a day of rest. Scholars will point to the Genesis account um, that this idea that the Sabbath exists in there It's not just to give us a reason for the Jews taking one out of seven days off, but it's meant to paint a picture of the reality that all of creation culminates in this day of resting in God's created work. The the days, the six days of creation that, that precede the Sabbath day all have this same phrase that there was evening and then there was morning and that was the end of the day. And some scholars will even point out that for the seventh day of rest, there's no description of a beginning and an end to it. And they say that's because God's infusing into the creation story this idea that somewhere God's ideal is 
a day that's defined by resting with him in his completed work, enjoying, you know, this blessed day of everything being finished. And all of creation is built towards this wonderful day that's going to be promised. This principle is meant to then be highlighted through the Sabbath practice for the Jews. So every week they take a day off to be reminded that all of creation's built towards an eternal day of rest that's going to know no end where we just get to be in God, the goodness of God's blessed presence, enjoying the completed work that he has done. They're supposed to do it. They're supposed to take a day off every every week to be reminded of that reality. Uh, This was formalized for the Ten Commandments given to Moses. This was one of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So the religious leaders are really upset about what Jesus is doing because he worked on the Sabbath. For them, remembering the Sabbath, the most important part of remembering the Sabbath was to not do any work. And Jesus made mud, and making mud is definitely doing work. And you can imagine, you can make the connection. If your houses are built out of bricks that you make out of mud, like, yeah, making mud's not playing in a mud puddle when you're little and being late for dinner. That was an oddly specific description of something, some childhood trauma. Um, It's about work. And so making mud is work. And then healing's probably work, too. I mean, healing seems like something that would take some work. And so they're, they're upset, and they get upset at Jesus for healing at other times. But he's working on the Sabbath. And if the most important part of the Sabbath is not working, is obeying the rule not to work, then you can see how this is a big deal. Of course, it could be argued on the other side that God's intent for the Sabbath was a lot less about not working, and it was more about entering into the reality of of the eternal rest that the Sabbath is pointing toward. Of course, when I say that, I'm now ranking what's important, right? And we know that not working is part of it because that's part of the command, but I'm saying what's more important than not working is entering into this eternal rest, this blessed, goodness, completed work of God. Abstaining from work and entering into God's rest are both important. They're part of it. But the most important part is the, the entering in. It's interesting, and, and you see this throughout Jesus' ministry. He's really intentional about breaking the Sabbath rule against work. Really intentional about it. And then in this story, he was even intentional about framing it in the, in the language of work and inviting his disciples to join the work of God on the Sabbath. You think, how scan- he couldn't be more intentionally scandalous. He couldn't. He's poking the bear for sure. And one thing that religious people can always struggle with is what is more important. These stories of Jesus often highlight that the religious people in Jesus' day and remind us the religious people in our day, us, can get hung up on what is most important and so often in these stories, what Jesus sees as more important is not what the religious leaders see as most important. They're valuing not doing work, which in their minds breaks the command. But Jesus is valuing 
This idea of embodying the completeness and the blessedness that creation's meant to be in. It's almost as if Jesus is saying to himself, how can any of us celebrate a Sabbath when there's a blind man among us? We need to take care of this first because this is broken. And God only rested after creation was completed. He says, how can any of us say, I'm going to take a day off, I'm not going to do any work when the world around us is falling apart. And Jesus steps into that and he embodies this idea of completeness and blessedness. And and anything that's going to fall short of that is on Jesus' list of things to do on his Sabbath. It's like Jesus' actions are saying, there is no Sabbath until the work is completed. And while some people see that happen, they see Jesus heal him, and they see a miraculous manifestation of God's presence with us. This man has to be from God. Other people see it, and they think, oh my gosh, that guy is so far out of bounds, he couldn't be from God at all. And the difference between these two people is, again, what they consider most important. The story continues. They turn again to the blind man and they say, what have you to say about Jesus? It was your eyes that he opened. And the man replies, he is a prophet. They wanted to know his opinion. But then you keep reading, you find they didn't want to know his opinion. They still didn't believe that he'd been blind and that he'd received sight until they sent for the man's parents. The Pharisees are so committed to their interpretation of the the out-of-bounds line that even though a blind man sits before him, they're now in denial about that. They're so committed to what they think God should do that when God is doing something in front of them in this moment, they cannot receive it. Verse 19, they bring the parents and they say, is this your son? Is this the one that you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? The parents reply, well, we know he's our son and we know that he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we have no idea. Ask him, he's of age, he can speak for himself. (laughs) They throw their son right into the bus. John adds to this, the parents said this, not because they didn't know the answer to the question. I would assume they'd maybe had a conversation with their son at this point. But they say this because they're afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. You imagine what the synagogue means, what church life means for these first century Jews. And then you imagine these people who are in positions of authority in the synagogue, making sure that everybody knows, hey, this is a bad guy. Don't associate with him. Certainly don't call him the Messiah or you're getting booted out of the church. I, I, I can't remember if I've ever seen someone kicked out of a church, but this is a heavy, heavy thing for the parents and they are afraid. There's religious pressure being put on them to be a certain way, to do a certain thing, and they're afraid and they feel it. What are the other people going to say? What are my friends at at church going to say? And so in some ways, even the parents' ability to rejoice in this miracle is curbed by the religious pressure where their community has defined the out-of-bounds line and they want to make sure that they're not found on the wrong side of it, lest they be kicked out of the church. I think we live in, a, in an individualistic enough and rebellious enough culture that we probably, some of us at least, would struggle to connect with that on some level. Like some of you probably would love for someone to tell you what to do just so you could tell them where they can take their advice, right? Like we're Americans for crying out loud. 
Don't tell me where the boundary lines are. I'll tell you where they are. Um, but this is why his parents, who were crippled by this fear of other believers and what they would think of them, this is why they say he's of age. Ask him. So they bring the man in a second time. And they say, give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner. The man replies, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. But there is one thing I do know. I was blind and now I see. I think that's a pretty good answer, especially when we find ourselves in the debates about what's most important or trying to be baited into making judgments about whether someone is a sinner or not. This man sets all that aside and says, look, here's my experience. I was blind and now I see. God has done a miracle in my life. And I don't know if that guy's a sinner or not, but I know what God has done in my life. There is undisputed goodness on display. So I'm not worried about the out-of-bounds line anymore. The fact that God's undisputed goodness on display should always trump any religious notions that a community might have about where the out-of-bounds lines are. When we talk about what is most important, God's completed work manifested in our world is most important. If someone experiences healing, I'm not going to get hung up on what that looks like or the process or whether somebody said the right magic words when they prayed the prayer. I'm just going to rejoice in the fact that God is moving in our world. I long for that. I want to see that. For this man, all he knows is I've encountered Jesus and now I can see. And eyes being opened is all that should matter. Eyes being opened should always trump the sidelines of the Pharisees. There's a few more sentences in this story, but we'll kind of skip to the end for time's sake now. Um, Jesus closes it out with these remarks, verse 19, or 39. He says, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Who's the judge? Who's, come, who's the one who judges the world? Jesus is, right? None of us are taking that place. And there's a principle of God working in divine human partnership to bring his rule and reign on earth, right? But Jesus is the one who comes and fulfills the humanity part of that because we couldn't do it ourselves. We couldn't get it right. We tried, you know, for a few thousand years of human history. Humans tried over and over again. The patriarchs, the Israelites, the judges, the kings. We tried over and over again to do it. We couldn't do it. That's the takeaway. We need someone to come and do this for us. Jesus comes and does it for us. He says, for judgment I've come into the world so the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this, and so they asked, What? Are you saying we're blind too? Then Jesus says to them, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So we begin to see that humility seems really, really important to the work of God happening in our lives. Because humble people put their trust in God 
rather than themselves. Based on what Jesus says here, guilt comes not from being blind. You remember the question that kicked this whole thing off was, there's a man who's blind and the disciples say to Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? Who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents? And so we know there's a connection with humanity's sin and the world not being how it's supposed to be. And yet Jesus says, you're not guilty because you're blind. In other words, humanity is not guilty because they've sinned. That guilt doesn't stick to us. The guilt comes not from being blind, but it comes from claiming that you can see. Guilt comes not from doing the good work on the Sabbath, but it comes, or sorry, it, it comes not from doing work on the Sabbath, but it comes from riding around on your high horse, judging everyone else around you for what they're doing on the Sabbath. In other words, guilt doesn't come from sinning, but it comes from claiming that you haven't sinned. While being preoccupied, I would add to that, while being preoccupied with where everyone else's foot is in regards to where you think the out-of-bounds line is. You see, God has settled the sin problem for humanity once and for all with the work of Jesus Christ. And we can live in that reality where we see the problem as settled by God or we can allow sin to continually haunt our lives. We can allow it to haunt our lives through the decisions that we make and the temptations that we succumb to or we can allow it to continue to haunt our lives as we make judgments about all the people around us and what we think they should be doing. The big picture reading of the scriptures makes us come away with an idea that God uses mankind's sin as an opportunity for him to reveal his goodness, his forgiving nature, and his saving grace. Yeah, you can't do it on your own. You really need me. That's what sin teaches us. I can't do it on my own. I really need God. And yes, his character is revealed in the 613, I think, commandments from the Old Testament, from the Torah. His character is revealed in things like good moral behavior. And yet there's something that's more important than that. He's spoken through his spirit and through the prophets, whittling down all of that and pointing us toward what is most important. We'll close today just reflecting on Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Micah 6, the prophet's asking how someone should come before God. What is it that God wants from humanity? What is it that God wants us to bring in our hand as an offering for him? And he says, we know just what God wants. He's told us what is good. He's told us what he requires of us. The prophet says to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. We see doing justice embodied in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, right? He's going on on the Sabbath and he sees something that's not right, something that represents brokenness in humanity, and he does justice. He fixes it. Rules aside, out of bounds lines aside, this is not right and this needs to be addressed right now. And he heals it. We see Jesus' love for mercy manifested in how he interacts with those who are sinful human beings. He's the one who nailed to the cross, says, Father, forgive them. He's the one who says to the accused, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. How do you know if you love mercy? 
I think that's something that you can only know in how your heart responds to the opportunities you have to show mercy. When someone reminds you this is an opportunity to show mercy, does your heart go, oh, yes, sweet. I love that. Or do you think to yourself, darn it, I really wanted them to get it. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. I think people who tend to be the hardest on other people are usually people who are in the greatest denial about their own faults. And God's spirit invites all of us into a better way of living. You are loved by God. You don't have to work hard to earn his approval. You don't have to show that you're better than somebody else for fear that he's going to overlook you or forget how wonderful you are. He is convinced of that. So don't worry. God's not counting on you to judge your neighbor. And he's, he's got a very, very qualified candidate for that job. And he has a plan for all of that. Your job is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. That's what's most important. And I think if we can agree on that and we can live toward that, we can be a part of God's work that's meant to transform our community. Let's pray, and then we'll have the worship team come up, and we'll uh, come to the table for communion. Father, we are so grateful for the revelation of your goodness brought to us by your word. We're so grateful for your commitment to us, unfailing commitment. We're thankful for the revelation that uh, that the mothers in our lives bring of that unfailing commitment. We're thankful for the way that you are revealed through that to us, the one who would never turn us away, the one who is always calling us home, the one who never forgets to set a place for us at the table. Father, we pray that your love would transform our hearts today. You would make us more like your son. You'd make us more like you. We know it's who we're destined to be. We know it's how you created us. And we just acknowledge that each one of us falls short of it so often. Thank you that you sent your Holy Spirit to teach us, to be with us, and to help us. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would fill our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen.